The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. If you're in the market for a new mattress, casper.com slash rabbi should be the next website you visit. Casper created an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It's one perfect mattress that's sold directly to you, eliminating the need to endure one of those commission salesman mattress stores with inflated prices. Casper is shipped for free right to your door, astonishingly delivered in a sleek, how did it fit in their box? You just let it unfold, and there you've got it, one of the most supportive sleep surfaces ever designed, hassle-free. Casper is made in America. Time magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Breathable latex and memory foams are combined for just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Right now, get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash rabbi. That's casper.com promo code rabbi. Terms and conditions apply. casper.com slash rabbi. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody. This is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, that's me, your rabbi, replaces life's puzzling paradoxes and perplexing predicaments with its permanent principles. And uh, one of the permanent principles of life is that there is such a thing as a spiritual reality. Now, you all know, you regular listeners to this show know that when I say spiritual, I'm not speaking about pious, I'm not speaking about holy, I'm not speaking about virtuous or good. I'm simply speaking about phenomena that are not measurable in a laboratory. There is good spiritual, there's bad spiritual, but a lot of people assume that spiritual simply means um, holy or God. No, it isn't. Spiritual is a very specific earthly term, and it means things that are real in our lives that are not measurable in a laboratory. So, for instance, uh, um, the, the love between two people, uh, totally non-measurable, totally spiritual, and uh, if you were somebody who believed devoutly in biological determinism, uh, you'd probably say that it's irrelevant because a human being is just like an animal. And just as there is absolutely no indication that an animal uh, thrives in the presence of love and, uh, and, and uh, does poorly in, in its absence, uh, so it would be with people, but that's simply not true. Uh, even from the youngest age, we know that people thrive with love and do poorly in its absence. We're, we're just a different species from every other creature on the planet. For us, spiritual reality is a reality, perhaps even a very important reality. So, for instance, you know, imagine, uh, Im here's an awful thing to imagine, so don't really imagine it, but just con consider somebody coming home and uh, discovering that his house has been ransacked while he's away. And um, the, somebody's called the police, and the police are there, 
and they uh, they come and they ask you, would you please check to find out what has been taken? Well, it turns out that you're one of these careful people that maintains an inventory of your possessions for insurance purposes, or maybe maybe you're just uh, obsessive about these things and like a list of everything you own. But whatever it is, you you got the list, and and you go through your list, and while your cupboards and drawers have been opened and things strewn around, your clothing is all over the place. Uh, the bottom line is that nothing is missing. Absolutely nothing is missing. Question. Do you feel violated? Of course you do. But from a material point of view, nothing has changed, particularly since uh, your city police have a special office of wonderful people who restore everything post-robberies uh, to the way it was before. And so uh, these these nice policemen, law enforcement people come and they tidy everything up and put everything back in their clothes and they say, there, there, now everything is just the way it was before, right? And you thank them, but in your heart you know that's simply not true. Strange hands were going through your possessions, touching some of your most prized and personal things you cherish, that changes it. It doesn't change it biologically or physically or materially. There's no lab in the world that could tell the difference between your home before and your home afterwards. The change has been purely spiritual. And so this thing is, is a reality. Understanding how spiritual implications work uh, can be enormously helpful in enhancing the quality of your life. So that's uh, we're talking about that a little bit today. But uh, first of all, uh, a story from uh, a while back. I was invited to give a speech to a, uh, uh, a very interesting group. It was a, a marriage group in, in Mexico, and uh, it was at a large convention uh, place in Mexico City, I, and I, I've been trying so hard to learn to speak Spanish, and uh, I'm obviously not devoting enough time uh, to, to, to really work at it meticulously, because I got there, and, uh, and I, I, I had to get help, because I wanted to give the first few sentences of my speech in Spanish, which I did. I'm sure it was appalling, but, but people appreciated the effort, which was prodigious, I can assure you. Uh, and at the end, uh, at the end of it, you know, my my hosts were very, uh, uh, very gracious. They showed me around. Everything was wonderful. And um, ordinarily, uh, when I do a speech, it's it's like any other job anyone else does. Uh, the terms are usually arranged beforehand. There's a contract, exactly how much it'll cost, what's being paid, what isn't being paid, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but in in this particular instance, I. Um, uh, I did not have my office make those preliminary arrangements because um, I wanted to help this this group, and I I, I told them that um, whatever they saw fit would be fine. I don't do that very often, right? I, I have to put bread on the table like everybody else, and uh, I have a budget like everybody else, and so uh, to to leave things in the in the hands of the of the client, I don't ordinarily do. Even though sometimes it's quite possible that the uh, appreciation of the client would be reflected in a fee higher 
than that which I ask for. But it doesn't matter. This way, everybody knows. Anyway, I didn't do it this time, and and that's fine. And I I truly uh, did not expect uh, anything at all. And the funny thing is that I didn't get anything at all, but yes, at the same time I did, and and I actually got some value out of what happened. Um, They gave me a little Inca idol, an original Inca idol, you know, I don't think it was uh, a particularly expensive thing. It was, uh, it stood about five inches tall. It was an ugly little devil. And uh, obviously, you know, fairly primitively carved. And it came with a little explanation uh, brochure and a little plaque. came in a nice uh, um, box that, that looked like it was made by the same people who make those beautiful dovetailed wooden cigar boxes. And um, and uh, and it's explained that this this was an original, you know, this was found in one of the uh, Inca, maybe it was the Aztec ruins, I don't remember, and uh, and this used to be an object of worship by uh, by people who um, who who used to worship these little deities at the time, and uh, and so you know, I'm sure that to them they they thought and they were very sweet. I mean, they were giving me something that was of local interest and. Uh, and uh, it you know, probably had some value. I don't, I don't think it was particularly uh, valuable. It was the sort of thing I think they probably found uh, thousands and thousands of these things lying around in the jungle. At any rate, uh, what happens is uh, I take it, I, I fly home, and I uh, gather my family around, and I say, look what I was given. I was given an idol. How often have any of you seen an actual idol? I mean, we read about it, right? We we know that uh, idol worship was prevalent. We know that Abraham's father, uh, according to ancient Jewish wisdom, was an idol trader, an idol uh, mar- m- uh, merchant. Uh, we know that um, idolatry is constantly, constantly warned against in the strongest terms in Scripture. And um, and so I pulled out a Bible, and I opened it to Exodus chapter 34, verse 13, and I read to my family, uh, and all, you know, we're blessed with seven children, they were all gathered around, and they all remember this. Um, the, uh, the verse says, and um, you shall, when you come across idols, you shall smash them and obliterate them, and... Uh, and uh, grind them to nothing. And then I went to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 3, and I read that verse to them, where again, in the strongest of terms, we're admonished not only to avoid uh, anything to do with idols, let alone worshipping them, but actually to smash them, pulverize them, obliterate them, and um, but generally end their existence, just the idol. Okay, so... So this is this is very interesting, and I said, you know, we are now in the fortunate position of being among the very few people who are actually able to fulfill this commandment. There are 613 commandments in the five books of Moses, of which the average person 
is able to only uh, fulfill, you know, I, I don't know exactly, somewhere around about 20 or 30. And, you know, many of them apply only to priests, many apply only to kings, many apply uh, to men, many apply only to women. Uh, so as an individual, there's only a very small number that actually apply to you. Uh, this one applies to everybody, but after all, <laughs> when in my life ordinarily would I have encountered an idol? What's more, an idol that I actually owned. It belongs to me. So uh, we actually had a formal ceremonial idol destruction in the backyard. And uh, we, t in order to uh, make sure that it didn't just uh, turn into a, a sort of childish orgy of destruction, uh, but it retained some spiritual significance, uh, we actually even said a blessing, you know, thanking the Lord for bringing us to this time uh, and giving us this opportunity to fulfill uh, an obscure, somewhat obscure and unusual commandment in that we don't usually see it anyways. So there it is. We fulfilled the commandment. Why? Because this little object, by simple fact, by virtue of the fact that human beings worshipped it, they imbued this thing with a certain spiritual significance. And that spiritual significance clings to the object in exactly the same way uh, that if, uh, if I receive a letter from the woman I love, uh, it's not just a piece of paper. It's different from an email. Um, it's, it's something she touched. Her pen wrote those words. It has a special, but what is that significance that it possesses? Purely spiritual, that's all. That's what it is. So I want to uh, explain a little bit more on this. And some of you on the more astute side may know exactly where we're going with this but uh, when we come back I'll take you there via the story of my Hitler medal all of which leads us to a better understanding of spiritual reality and how the world really works so um, we uh, as usual I ask you to visit the website to see if any of basically I'm walking you into my marketplace into my booth and I'm saying, hey, look around, take a look. I hope you find something you like. I hope you find something that can be useful to you. If you do, it makes both of us happy and go for it. If you don't, uh, no harm, no foul, no problem. So uh, there it is, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, because of the fact that I am uh, taping this just shortly before the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, and uh, you'll see, actually, I've been putting out some videos on uh, the Jewish New Year and the uh, high holidays that follow. So uh, the, the product we want to bring to your attention and uh, make available to you is called um, Day for Atonement. And uh, it's, it's nominally, it's about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But in actuality, it's about so much more. It is about... Uh, personal responsibility, it's about uh, self-respect, it's about the ways ha in which we can behave in order to enhance the way we feel about ourselves. And uh, anyway, there's, there's more about it you can read. I don't want to take up your time now. Go to rabbidaniellappin.com and take a look at uh, Day for Atonement. Be back with you in just a moment. The Blaze on Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. 
The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Welcome back, everyone. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, remain solemnly dedicated to replacing life's puzzling paradoxes and its perplexing predicaments with its permanent principles. Because once you know the permanent principles, you can make all the rest of the decisions yourself in the best possible way. It's exactly the same as uh, taking care of a motor car, right, on a simple level. Uh, If you understand the permanent principles, uh, things like friction, things like lubrication, things like uh, the the process of converting the energy in oil into uh, motion in a car, you understand those basic principles – uh, taking care of your car and and prolonging its life uh, becomes a very simple matter. It's not a mystery. Um, for many of us, medicine is a mystery. For a well-trained doctor who uh, really understands the permanent principles um, of you know of biology and of cells and of everything, uh, somebody who 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 can do all of those things becomes a uh, a master diagnoser, somebody who, who's a really dependable doctor, understanding the permanent principles makes everything else open up and yield its secrets, allowing you to make sense of it all. And so if we can get a handle on life's permanent principles, then as I like to say, the, the, the perplexing paradoxes and the puzzling predicaments vanish and are replaced by considerable clarity. So uh, what I was talking about is that human beings can confer uh, some kind of quality to intangible objects by their relationships with those objects. Um, I wrote a chapter in um, my book, Buried Treasure, Life's Lessons from the Lord's Language. It's a nice book, by the way, and uh, not to not to, uh, I don't want to verge too much into a uh, into a commercial promotion there, but uh, it's called uh, Buried Treasure: Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. It's on my website. Anyway, I have a chapter in there about our dining room table, and uh, and again, if if you're a family, if you're part of a family that has made a big deal over the years of family meals like we have, then that dining room table becomes a special thing. And so uh, when we relocated once, there was no question in our mind that whether or not it would fit our new place, we didn't, it, that had to come with us. There was too much of the family embedded in its oaken surface. And, um, and, and you know, we're, we're not the only people to sort of feel that way about a dining room table. Um, I said I'd tell you about my Hitler medal. Well, my Hitler medal is uh, an interesting thing, and you might, you might be surprised that I, that I have it. As a matter of fact, 
uh, in an interview recently, um, I was interviewed by uh, Elliot Resnick of the Jewish Press on a number of, of questions, mostly book-related, but he asked me uh, what, and I think he said, what books would people be most surprised to find on your bookshelf? And, uh, and I got a lot of response from readers to the Jewish Press. Um, it's, a, it's a newspaper in Brooklyn. Uh, because of how I answered this one particular thing. Had he said what things would people be surprised to find out of mentioned my Hitler medal? But uh, as it was, what I mentioned was uh, a well-used copy of Hitler's book Mein Kampf, which he wrote well before World War II, and in which he pretty much described uh, precisely what his intentions were. And, uh, and I think the interviewer was a little puzzled as well, and I, I explained and I said, look, uh, the remarkable thing is that of all the Western pre-World War II statesmen, as far as I've been able to determine, only Winston Churchill read Mein Kampf. Here's a guy who's building up a totalitarian fascist dictatorship in the most populous and warlike nation in Europe, and he writes a book wouldn't you want to know what's in it? And um, and it's extraordinary to me. Only Churchill. I mean, gosh, Neville Chamberlain didn't read it. None of the French politicians read it. Nobody in America in, in the upper levels in Washington read the books. Extraordinary. Anyways, I, um, I explained that not only do I have the book, but I've actually read it um, several times, and I've certainly referred to it on many times. One of the things I, uh, I did one year was to see how many paragraphs I could find in that that are true and that could have been written by a, uh, a religious Jew. Interesting, though. Again, not for today's topics. I'm not going to uh, tell you the, the paragraphs, but um, I actually found a number of paragraphs that could just as easily have been written by a truthful uh, observer of the world who happens also to be a uh, God-fearing and Bible-believing Jew. Could have written those paragraphs. And as a matter of fact, uh, one year in my synagogue in California uh, on the um, Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, the evening before, uh, is, is typically one of the, the most well-attended services of the entire year, and um, I, uh, I said, look, I'm going to read you three different paragraphs, and I want you to vote by, by raising your hands. I'm going to ask you the question of whether these were written by a, uh, uh, an observant and, and, and accurate observer who happens to be Jewish, or by an anti-Semite. Who do you think wrote these paragraphs? And overwhelmingly, my congregation voted that they were written by a Jew. Yes, paragraphs in, uh, in the book uh, Mein Kampf. Fascinating. At any rate, um, the, uh, the medal is, is an interesting story. And uh, what happened here is uh, I, I was... Um, contacted by somebody, and I, I don't want to go into too many details right now on that, but I was contacted by somebody who, uh, uh, whose grandfather or grandmother 
uh, his grandparents were in Germany. They were German. And, uh, you know, to what extent they bought into the Nazi philosophy and Hitler, he doesn't know. But uh, he's always been uneasy about the family connection to Nazi Germany. And, and I've, you know, I'd explained to him before that, um, uh, you know, we're not, we don't carry that taint from our grandparents. It's, it's just not, you know, we are not responsible for things that our, our grandparents uh, did. You know, Bible says to the third or fourth generation, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that sort of thing. So those are things for God to deal with. But but in our uh, interhuman affairs, that simply isn't the case. We don't blame people now for things their grandparents did or may have done. So at any rate, he then came to tell me, he had to speak to me, and he said, look, it's worse than that. Uh, in my family, there's been a something passed down from my grandmother, I think it was his grandmother. I don't think it was his great-grandmother, but maybe it was. I don't recall exactly. I'd have to go check my notes. He says, um, so any woman who had six or more children in the Third Reich received a medal from Hitler at a ceremony. They actually put out their hands, and Adolf Hitler put a medal in their palms. Uh, And it was a medal that uh, a beautifully enameled swastika with engravings and uh, decorations and on the back uh, signed you know from Adolf Hitler's signature engraved in the bronze on the back of it he said my grandmother maybe it was great-grandmother received this and it's been the sort of treasured heirloom in the family he says um, and I I'm just feeling that it's bringing us bad luck I just feel owning it is just not something for us so I said, well, you know, why don't you sell it? It probably has a little value. He said, no, because if I sell it, whatever bad qualities, spiritual qualities it has, gets transferred to the money. And so I'm benefiting from it. I don't want to do that. So he says, so I said, so can you, how about just throwing it away? You know, and I'm thinking back to the story of my idol. I said, why don't you just destroy it and get rid of it? And he says, no, that wouldn't work either. I've got to, uh, somebody else has to take it over. And so I said, look, I, myself, I don't believe that, um, that this thing can bring bad luck. But if you do, and if it would help you, I would be not only happy, I'd be grateful to take it from you. It's, it's something I would, I would very much want to have. And would you believe it, uh, he, he, with, with profuse gratitude, he gave it to me. And here is this thing that Adolf Hitler touched. Now, uh, again, uh, does it have really bad connotation? Yeah, I think it does. Does it have some spiritual weightiness to it on account of that? Sure, it does. Uh, is that likely to, to bring bad luck? I don't think so. And I certainly uh, have, haven't felt that over the, the years I've, I've owned this object. And so I do have it, again, something unusual. But point being that there is such a thing as uh, spiritual weightiness, spiritual qualities being imparted to an object by virtue of who owned it. Um, and, and we do this all the time, right? I mean, if you receive a gift from a lover, uh, that gift has more value than simply the thing itself. If, if somebody steals it and the insurance simply replaces it with something else that looks exactly the same, it doesn't have the same value to you. I've pointed out in the past that um, if uh, somebody offered me 
a perfect reproduction of a Rembrandt painting, and I, I admire the painter uh, Rembrandt, the Dutch painter Rembrandt, very much. Uh, somebody offered me a reproduction of it, which has been uh, enhanced so as it now looks exactly the way it looked the day Rembrandt painted it. In other words, it looks better than the original hanging in the uh, Rijksmuseum, in the State Museum in, in Amsterdam. And regardless, let's take me away. Let's imagine I, I couldn't sell it. There was no monetary issue involved. But if I'm offered the painting that Rembrandt did, which is inferior and deteriorated, or a brilliantly produced reproduction, which is better than the original, I prefer the original, even though it's not as good to look at as the reproduction. Why? Because the painter Rembrandt's hands touched that. That was his. And this is really at the root of much of the whole industry of collectibles, isn't it? Uh, when, when people go to auctions and, and galleries and they bid on certain things, many times it's because of who owned it, right? Elvis Presley's microphone or whatever it was. And, uh, and I totally understand that because there is a spiritual quality imparted to the object because of its relationship with its owner over a period of time. And for many people, that is real and tangible, and, uh, and there are other people who, who are simply oblivious to it. It doesn't mean it's not there. It's just they're not sensitive to it. They're simply not aware of the fact that, yes, we can impart spiritual significance to, uh, to real objects. And talking of spiritual significance, uh, there is a one-hour audio program. You can download it right away, or uh, you can buy it in the form of an audio CD that will come to you in the mail. It's called Day for Atonement, and uh, it is uh, visible. You can read about it, and I think you can even hear a, a segment of it on the website rabbidaniellappin.com. Why don't you check that out at rabbidaniellappin.com, audio program, Day for Atonement. I, your rabbi, back with you in just a moment. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. You want to save money in a place that gives you growth, control, and certainty without stock market risk or tax risk, and you want guarantees and you want it all tax-free. That's a tall order. But you can get all of that with properly designed participating whole life insurance. Most people think life insurance pays after you're dead. That's true. But you can have tax-free access to use your life insurance while you're alive. Get the free book to find out how. Call 702-660-7000. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, do my best to replace all of life's puzzling paradoxes and perplexing predicaments with its permanent principles. And the permanent principle we're looking at today um, is the reality of the spiritual, how it is that spiritual impacts our lives, and particularly how it is that we uh, have the capacity to imbue an intangible object with spiritual significance. 
And um, when it's it's something that uh, a lot of people relate to, then it contains and carries even more spiritual significance. All of this is to explain uh, why it is that verses in Exodus chapter 34 and Deuteronomy chapter 12 in the Bible speak about the need to shatter and obliterate the idols. Okay, so uh, the Lord brings his people into the promised land, and he says, look, when you get there, you're going to find idols, the, the previous inhabitants of the land, and, and uh, you know, God recycles lands from one nation to another, and uh, the previous nation left behind idols that they worshipped. These have to not merely be put in museums or art galleries. No, they have to be smashed and destroyed. Why? Because they have been imbued with spiritual significance by virtue of the fact that large numbers of people held them in in enormous uh, esteem, were enthralled by them, worshipped them, and that means the the mere presence of these objects uh, has the capacity to uh, create spiritual blisters, if you like, within the nation that is now occupying the land, right? You need, you need to get rid of that. Okay, now jump ahead um, a couple of thousand years, and uh, let's go to Afghanistan around about uh, 2001, February or March 2001. This, by the way, well before September the 11th of that year. Uh, you will remember that the Taliban had taken over Afghanistan, and uh, and uh, the the Clinton administration had poo-pooed it and it paid no no attention. Osama bin Laden was already around, and uh, and um, uh, there had been an opportunity to uh, corral him in North Africa, and. Uh, the Clinton administration had decided not to do that. Now, I understand they, they wanted a party. They wanted to just be a replay of Camelot. Uh, no bad things should happen. And, and that's why the takedown of uh, TWA Flight 800, which uh, uh, I believe most evidence points to uh, a terror uh, attack. Uh, and again, not, not to go into it now, but... You know, I can assure you I'm not, I'm not paranoid, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, uh, but I have looked at the evidence extensively on that one. But, of course, once the Clinton administration decreed it to be uh, the one and only um, uh, fuel tank explosion that the Boeing 747, the most successful airliner that was ever built, uh, had ever had, but nothing's going to change that in hindsight. Uh, I, can, I can tell you a hundred times that it was a terror attack. It's nothing is going to change. The official ruling has has been made, and it was made because the Clinton administration did not want to deal with anything unpleasant like enemies or terror or uh, having to worry about national security. It was party time. So um, uh, the fact is, though, that um, uh, the Taliban during that time were basically had a free hand in subverting Afghanistan, taking over. And what did they do in early 2001? They destroyed the famous Buddha statues. These are enormous, uh, 150 feet, I think, at least, maybe more tall, a pair of uh, 
really rather extraordinary Buddha statues, and they went ahead and uh, dynamited them and blew them to smithereens. Well, uh, there was outrage among the progressive left. Oh, people were so unhappy about that. Did they do anything? No, of course, they certainly didn't do anything because uh, the left believes that feelings are much more important than either thoughts or actions. Feelings are what really count. And uh, so this was by no means the only destruction wreaked by the Taliban. You may remember Omar uh, Muhammad, um, Mullah Omar Muhammad, or was it Mullah Muhammad Omar, I think, um, the late Mullah uh, Muhammad Omar had given direct instructions for any idols to be smashed. And the reason he smashed the Buddhas were that people had worshipped them. Now, uh, you might say, well, you know, here is our rabbi giving a free pass to the Taliban. <clears throat> I'm not giving a free pass to them. I'm certainly understanding where they're coming from, and heaven knows you're never going to be able to survive an attack if you don't have the faintest understanding of your enemy. Uh, it, I think it was after Pearl Harbor, but I may be wrong on this. It might have been shortly before uh, where the, um, uh, the American War Department, I think back then they had not yet turned it into the Department of Defense. I think it was called the War Department, I think. And uh, they commissioned a study of Japan, and uh, a very interesting woman called Ruth Benedict uh, went ahead and did the study for them because they didn't understand Japanese culture, not one little bit. And there were people there who understood that if you don't understand them, you're not going to be able to fight them or defeat them. It's not going to happen. So she did the study, and then she turned it, by the way, later on into a book with one of the most beguiling titles um, I've ever seen on a book. She called it The Chrysanthemum and the Sword. And um, it's for, you know, for people interested in, in that period and what was going on and, and the analysis of Japanese culture, it was great. Uh, but the title I particularly loved because it expressed the uh, fascinating uh, interface between the aesthetic and the warlike. Uh, right? Nobody would have ever written a book about Germans called The Chrysanthemum and the Sword. Right? You know, Germans, the German people known for warlike ability but hardly known for aesthetic. But uh, Japan, flower arrangements, uh, elegance, it, it's there. To this day, you see it in Japan. And at the same time, war-making capacity, the chrysanthemum and the sword. And so uh, that's what um, – so I'm, I'm simply trying to uh, explain and understand not only who the Taliban were and are, but uh, also uh, Islam in general. So where did Omar, uh, Mullah Omar Muhammad, or Muhammad Omar, where did he get this idea from that you have to destroy idols? Well, like a whole lot else um, from the Bible. <laughs> Distorted, uh, changed, modified, but uh, to some extent originally from there, right? That, that was where Muhammad got a lot of his, his ideas from change them around, uh, confusion very often. For instance, in the Torah, uh, a man is allowed to divorce his wife, and he's also allowed to remarry her, but not if she's been married to someone else in the interim. Okay, uh, Why is that? Well, it's intended to prevent uh, legalistic orgies. 
And if that didn't, if that law didn't exist, I'd have the greatest business. I would buy a hotel, and I would uh, set up a rabbinic desk at the entrance, and I'd invite couples to come on Saturday night. And when you walk through the door, I give you a divorce, and now you're divorced. And now the house is going to be filled with single people who can shack up. And But you don't just shack up. You come back to me when you found the person you want to spend the night with. You come back to me, and I marry you. And so everything legal so far, you're allowed to divorce. You're allowed to remarry. The next morning, after you've had a pleasant night, uh, you come back downstairs to my rabbinic table, and I divorce you from the person with whom you spent the night. And then you find your original spouse, retrieve him or her, come back to the table, I remarry you, and you go home. And everything has been kosher, everything has been fine, you've been a nice, good, religious Jew, following the Torah, accepting that uh, you've behaved uh, with abominable immorality. Uh, so that's why the Torah prohibits the remarrying of a previous spouse if the spouse has been married in the interim. Uh, the Koran, Sharia law, says uh, you may get divorced and you may remarry your spouse, but only if they've been married to somebody else in the interim. In other words, as Muhammad was sitting around the campfire, um, and again, he was a camel guide, uh, and who traveled? There was no tourism in those days. People traveled for business. Who traveled for business? Mostly Jews. And so Muhammad used to guide Jews on, uh, on their uh, business trips. And at the, around the campfire at night, he'd hear them talking, and he made notes or whatever, and, and maybe just memorized. And with some distortion, these things found their way into the Quran and into Sharia. So um, no logical reason why you should only be able to remarry a spouse after they have been married to somebody else. But that's just how it is at any rate. Uh, trying to understand what's going on. Yes, uh, Islam took a lot of things in either somewhat f accurate form or majorly distorted form from the Bible, and uh, one of them was this law of shattering idols. And so it didn't come out of nowhere, in fact, uh, until the present time throughout the Middle East to the distraught dismay of art collectors and aficionados and progressives everywhere, uh, many old artifacts that the Muslim authorities deem to have been part of idolatry worship in the past are being destroyed and obliterated and removed forever. And people are really, really upset about that. And, and fine, I, I get that. And, it's, uh, and, and, and to me personally, I'm sorry the Buddhas were, were shattered. I, I personally have, uh, have no problem with them. But, um, but the idea of destroying something that people have worshipped, there is something to that. And what has this got to do with the destruction of Confederate statues? <laughs> well, I can, I, I'm sure you see where that's headed, and I'm going to explain that just as soon as we come back. Over to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. While you're there, please make sure you receive our emails. You can subscribe to the weekly Thought Tools, Ask the Rabbi, uh, Susan's Musings. We send out three emails a week. You can subscribe to one of them, two of them, three of them, or none of them, whatever you wish, but all of that's on the website. And uh, also the best way to communicate with me, and I appreciate hearing from you, 
There are ways to send me notes on the website. You can also comment on any of the writings on the website and also read other people's comments, also interesting. All of that at rabbidaniellappin.com where you will find um, available to you a program called Day for Atonement. And uh, it is a one-hour audio program which speaks more about the spiritual powers that are a real part of our life and, and that we ignore truly uh, at our own loss. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you in just a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Pat Gray. They're so intrusive at the grocery store. Uh, do you want to contribute to the Boys Club of America? No. But it'll say your name, and it'll say you contributed $5. No. You want to contribute to the Ca- American Cancer Society? No, not at the grocery store. I didn't come here to give charity causes more money. But they're just trying. They're just asking. Pat Gray. Weekdays, noon to 3 Eastern. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Me, your rabbi, teaching, as always, on how to replace life's puzzling paradoxes and perplexing predicaments with its permanent principles. That changes everything. And uh, looking at the permanent principles behind everyday occurrences, yes, absolutely. I know that uh, we've all had it up to here with the uh, removal of Civil War statues. Um, we are, many people are predicting the, uh, the insanity will continue with the removal of uh, statues of, um, of uh, Washington and Jefferson. Uh, and in fact, anybody who back in the day might have owned slaves, which was a large number of people, uh, yeah, we, we see this going on all around us. And to criticize it is to risk being labeled a racist. Uh, nonetheless, th- the truth is that people can criticize things, anything, and uh, even the term racist itself is up for criticism, and I do criticize the term because I don't believe it is defined. And my best proof for the fact that it is a dangerously undefined term is the extent to which it is now being used as a bludgeon to silence any criticism of the left in any way whatsoever. When a, a slur is undefined, it can be used very easily. Right in, in the old days, when when somebody would say, "You sir are a bastard," uh, the answer is very simply, "No, I'm not. You, you're talking nonsense." Uh, my parents were married and remained married and were married long before I was conceived. Uh, end of story. Because the word "bastard" used to be defined. Uh, today, the word "racist" has absolutely no definition at all. Really, think about it. Try and come up with a definition, and I think you'll see it doesn't exist. Uh, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. And by the way, in that category is the word anti-Semite. Today, also used as a bludgeon to silence criticism of the left. How many times has Donald Trump been called an anti-Semite? Right? 
you know, whatever criticisms you might legitimately have of the president, an anti-Semite, that's really a bad thing to call him. It's nonsense. Again, a totally undefined term, complete nonsense. And I've been called an anti-Semite. Uh, I really have, which gives you some idea of uh, the meaninglessness of the term. And racist is exactly in the same category. Uh, that is very different from exonerating uh, prejudicial and bigoted behavior. That's, that's something else. I'm not doing that. But I am criticizing the use of the term racist, which today has become a highly effective tool in silencing any voice of a conservative uh, approach. At any rate, so um, the statues are being destroyed, and uh, this, this continues. What's going on? What's going on, my friends, is this reality that we have been discussing. Let me just do a very quick little uh, side track here, which I think is, is a necessary uh, explanation. And that is much of what we find in the Bible is what I call descriptive, not proscriptive. And um, I've explained before that uh, uh, if we decide to jail somebody for stealing a car, that is a proscriptive law, right? It's uh, Today we might decide to jail a person for stealing a car. Tomorrow we might decide that that's excessive and, uh, and stop jailing people who steal cars. A decade later we might decide to execute people who steal cars. You know, society can change. These laws are prescribed by the uh, legislative body of a society. And they are proscriptive. They are prescribed and laid down. There's no absolute to them, right? 55 mile an hour speed limit could have been 60, could have been 70, and in many places is. There's nothing fixed about that at all. But there, there are other laws, most, uh, mostly found in, shall we say, physics, for instance, um, where there's something called the law of gravity. That's not to say that if a group of physicists get together, they can abrogate the law of gravity and reduce it. Right now, gravity is 32 feet per second squared. In other words, any object that falls will increase its speed by 32 feet every second, provided air resistance doesn't slow it down. And, um, and a group of physicists get together and I say, we've decided this is too high. We want to change it to 20 feet per second every second. Can't do that because it's not a proscriptive law. It's a descriptive law. Much of the Bible is like that. And so uh, when the Bible speaks about shattering uh, idols, the uh, idea there is that it's not so much proscriptive as descriptive. Yes, uh, the Lord says you have to shatter idols because they can uh, become what I call a blister in the society that keeps them around, uh, absolutely. But at the same time, it's something that any healthy society should want to do anyway, should feel the need to do, uh, regardless of any uh, external um, uh, prescriptive laws. So that, that's really the idea, right? That People should feel the need to get rid of something that's got bad juju, right? something that, that's been worshipped 
uh, instead of God being that that thing is is not good in in exactly the same way that uh, there are many Jewish people who shudder when I say I own Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. They feel it's it's tainted. Well, it isn't, but I can understand them feeling that way. Uh, A better argument can be made about my Hitler medal, of course, but um, uh, but um, but certainly something that has been worshipped, right? Not not a good thing. Um, Weapons used in a murder. Uh, a house in which a murder took place. Many, many people feel really uncomfortable there, although biologically, physically, chemically, there's nothing discernible about that house at all. But the fact that a murder took place there, very often, um, very often real estate people demolish houses like that and rebuild them simply because they can't sell them, right? It's just the, the, the word got around, a murder took place there. All of that spiritual sensitivity, it's not stupid. It's not... It's not uh, uh, irrelevant. It's it's it is a reality, and um, that being the case, the uh, the fact that progressivism, the left, the religion of secular fundamentalism, is right now destroying statues. Well, it makes sense as long as you remember that leftism is a religion. That's right. It's not just an evil political ideology. No. It is actually a religion. An evil one, but it is a religion nonetheless. And as a religion, it obviously has to destroy things that are worshipped by other nations, by other religions. And so, yes, it is true that I do look with awe and respect at many of the great statues of the past doesn't mean I necessarily agree with every single thing that the person in that statue did in his life. That's just trivial and, uh, and childlike. Of course not. But the reason that, uh, that the statue is up there is because of a military victory or of heroism or whatever else he did and and the role he played in the evolution of the United States of America. So I and millions of other people do view that statue with veneration. And and I do. I I, I must say, I, I, you know, I drive through towns very often in the central town. There's some statue that goes back to one of the – I usually stop, park the car, get out and walk over to take a look. I really – I like doing that. Uh, and I, I look up, sometimes it's a guy on a horse or, or whatever it is, but um, yes, Robert E. Lee was an important character. Is everything right? I've always got to put in this little caveat, lest you fear that I'm a racist, right? Do I agree with everything he did? Of course not. That's not the point. Uh, but I fully understand that the religion of secular fundamentalism needs to destroy and get rid of that statue. Clearly, I get that. Of course. All right. Uh, the Why is secular fundamentalism a religion rather than a political philosophy? That is something I will explain, I hope, in the very next show uh, that we'll be uh, doing for you next week. But until next week, all I can do for now is to wish you a wonderful week of good health and prosperity. And uh, until next week, that's it. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. 
This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.